Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26 and reading to verse 31. This is the word of the living God. And as they led Jesus away, they laid hold upon one named Simon, a Cyrenian coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we gather together this morning, we would ask that thou wouldst be pleased to give us understanding as we look at this passage of Scripture. Open our eyes that we might see Christ in all of his glory. Open our ears that we might understand the truth that thou wouldst communicate unto us this morning. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. True story is told of a man, pastor, who went to visit with a parishioner, an older man, and in the course of the conversation, he suggested to the minister that he preach on the words of Hosea 2.15 and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And the pastor looked at him and said, Oh, sir, that's too big. That is just entirely too big of a subject. And as we come to our passage this morning do confess that this is a big subject. There is a lot here in this passage of Scripture. But as we have moved with Luke through the entire account of his gospel, and we see the Lord Jesus Christ riding into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds receiving him, we find that he is rejected, that he suffers and will be crucified. And as we see our account this morning, we are taking this journey on the road to Calvary. There are many journeys in life that we can take, but one thing that is so important is that we take that journey with Luke here to see the road to Calvary and where it leads, because that road to Calvary leads to life. That road to Calvary leads to the salvation that God intends to grant unto his people. 
Now, there are three characters on this road to Calvary. Oftentimes, again, we we miss the important truths of a narrative. We just simply read it as a narrative and give no thought. But consider, in this road to Calvary, the characters that Jesus encounters there and those who are with him. The first character on that road to Calvary are the murderers. There in verse 26, it says, go back to verse 25, and he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And then verse 25 or 26 says, And as they led him away. Here we find that account of Jesus, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, standing before his accusers, ready to be condemned, and they release a man who is a criminal. They release a man who was um, a rebel rouser, who was causing sedition. They released him from prison and asked that Jesus be crucified, put to death. Verse 21, those, those words that should ring in our ears, they said, crucify him, crucify him. Three times, Pilate asked, what has he done? This man is innocent. Yet, as we saw last time, an innocent man takes the place of the unrighteous and godly men. And so as they begin to arraign him for death, we find here that they lead him The chief priest had prevailed, verse 23, and so they released unto him the Lord Jesus and led him away. Who led him away? Well, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council who tried him. Those who were of the house of Israel, they led him away like a common criminal, to face the agony of a cruel death on a cross. Now we'll look at this next week, but don't ever think that the cross was some nice object of veneration. The cross was some beautiful thing that we set up in our homes. It was not a cross made of gold or of of some beautiful material It was a wooden tree. It was a tree upon which Jesus was hung. This was the way in which murderers were put to death. Criminals were put to death by the Romans. So it was the Sanhedrin. It was the Jewish council that led him away. It was the Roman soldiers who led him to the cross. This is a mixed crowd of people. It's a mixed crowd of evil and wicked men. They are the hostile crowd. 
They are ones, Luke records, that led him away. Those words, they led him away, show that Christ willingly went. Christ did not resist the arrest. Christ did not resist the sentence, even though he was innocent. He willingly allowed them to lead him away. And as we see Jesus taking that road of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, we find the hostile crowds. Crucify him! Crucify him! And in typical fashion, as he was being led away, the Roman soldiers the Jewish council in Sanhedrin, the crowds of people followed him because it was the crowds people, particularly these evil and wicked men, that wanted to see Jesus put to death. They did not understand why he came. They did not understand why the Lord Jesus Christ came and and did all of his miracles and, and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. That he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the one whom the crowds became hostile to. We've seen the hostility already throughout the gospel of Luke. But particularly in this passage, we see it is the hostile crowds of the religious leaders and of the Roman Soldiers who led Jesus away to be put to death. And yet we see, even in our own day, those who have no interest in Christ. Even within the visible pale of the church, there are those who have no interest in Christ. People today would soon stamp out any notion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get rid of the Christian religion. Persecute the followers of Christ. Cause them to suffer cruel and agonizing deaths. And yet people today have no interest in him. The question this morning as you're sitting here thinking through this text with me, do you have an interest in this Christ is he just someone you know from your reciting of the catechism? Is he just someone you know through the reading of, of Bible passages? Is he someone you know just because of familiarity? Or do you know this Christ whom the murderers put to death? These Jewish leaders particularly who despise this Christ because he upset their religious system. He called them to a new life of obedience. He called them to a life of discipleship. And yet, they hated him. They despised him because he upset their religious system and way of life. And that is the case today. Even in some churches, there are those who despise this Christ because he wants to upset the system. Yet Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into the world to save murderers. Christ came in the world to save religious people. 
and unreligious people. Christ came to save all kinds of people. We should consider this morning having a renewed interest in this one who was led away by his persecutors, by those who wanted to put him to death. But here we find another character on the road to Calvary. That is a kind stranger. In the good providence of the Lord, he always sends kind strangers to his people times of great trial and tribulation. But the record tells us in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this, that there is a man named Simon, a Cyrenian. And there, as he was led away, it says they, that is religious leaders and particularly the Roman centurions, laid hold upon one Simon. Now Matthew's gospel uh, brings this out, that as Jesus was bearing that cross beam that would form that cross upon which he was crucified, it was not an object, as I said, of veneration. It was an object of death. It was an object of, of the fact that he was, he was called a common criminal. Yet here the passage tells us that they called this one named Simon to lay hold upon the cross. Matthew tells us in his account of the gospel that Jesus, because of all of the physical pain and suffering that he went through, and Matthew records more of the flogging than what Luke does. Luke is only interested in certain details. But as all of that weighed upon that physical body, of Jesus who was fully human. He is making that road, carrying that beam, and he begins to fall. He begins to become weak. And yet we find here that they take hold. That phrase, they lay hold upon, indicates that they went and forced this man named Simon, Cyrenian, to bear the cross after Jesus. And so as we think of this kind stranger, he was a Jew. Simon was a common Jewish name. But he came from an area of modern-day Libya. Josephus says that there was a large Jewish community in Cyrene. Is this a random stranger? Were these just random events happening on the road to Calvary? I think not. There is Josephus, that early Jewish historian, records there were a significant number of Cyrenian Jews there in northern part of Africa. But these Jews had come for the Passover feast. And this man, Simon, later becomes a believer. If you look at Mark's account of the gospel in chapter 15 and verse 21, Mark 15, 21, it says, And they compelled one, Simon a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the, fa- out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear 
his cross. Of course, we don't know who Alexander and Rufus are, but they are two of Simon's children. But then when you come to Romans chapter 16, as Paul at the end of his great epistle on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he records there in chapter 16 a number of believers whom he greeted. He commends unto them Phoebe, their sister, who was a servant of the church. And then it mentions Priscilla. It mentions Mary. It mentions a number of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go down to verse 13 and it says, Salute Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. And so as Christ is walking the road to Calvary, this kind Jewish gentleman who was later converted, whose family were converted, who are listed there, at least his children, his wife, as those who gave their allegiance to Christ. He sees Christ crucified. And he goes back later to Cyrene. Acts chapter 11. The church grows in Cyrene. Preachers are sent out in Acts 11 because of little small details that we miss. Oh, the mighty sovereign work of God. How God can take a small, insignificant person, at least in our human eyes, and see that this man was used of God. His family were converted. And how God in his mighty work raises up those who are insignificant. Oftentimes, we feel that we are insignificant. We feel that we are no one. And yet God uses insignificant people like us to confound the wisdom of the world. Perhaps God will raise up here within this congregation a man who would be called to the ministry. A man who would be called to be a missionary, to take the gospel to other nations. Perhaps God would raise up an insignificant man to be a herald of the glorious riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does significant things in the lives of people who might seem insignificant but, oh, friends, don't think for a moment that this man is just some minor player within the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed is one who bore the cross of the Lord Jesus and later was used of God to bring the gospel to Africa. Oh, the wonderful working of God in the midst of history through men like Simon the Cyrenian. Not only do we see this kind stranger, kind stranger to most of those people, a kind stranger to us, but we see thirdly a group of weeping women. 
This is the only gospel account that records in verse in these verses 27 through 31 of the weeping women. Matthew does not record this. Mark does not record this. And isn't this strange? That Jesus would encounter a crowd of weeping women. But not only weeping women, it also states there that there were those of great company. And so there were those following Jesus who were of great company of people, a crowd of people. We don't know particularly who they are. Most likely they were the people who followed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as they said, Hail, Hosanna to the son of David. And so these could have been those who came from Jerusalem, riding in, coming into the city. But they are a great company. Luke uses that word great to signify that this was not just a small group of people. And so you can see the picture. You can see the scene. Jesus walking. Simon walking behind him, bearing his cross. And all of the crowd. And these weeping women going with him. Now some commentators are not very kind to the women in this passage. Some say that Jesus gives them a rebuke. And it is a rebuke. But in this... We don't want to miss the fact that in Luke's gospel, one of the things that he emphasizes over and over again is the role of women in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this before. God uses women, and certainly we see here, and we will see in chapter 24, that Luke shows women as prominent in his account of the gospel. But do you note in Luke's account of the gospel, you never find a woman who is hostile toward Jesus? You never encounter a woman who despises Jesus. You encounter a woman who was what? Washing his feet. Who was pouring expensive oil upon his feet. Who was spending time with Christ. You see women who, who come to bring the tidings of the gospel. You see women who are used in significant ways. But this is not just a crowd of women who are wailing and weeping. This is not just a crowd of hysterical women, as some might propose. They are sympathetic and compassionate to the Lord Jesus. As you look here in the text, it says, The women also followed him, which bewailed. And lamented. Now you have to understand, some would say that this was, was put on for show. I don't think that's the case at all. In that culture, when women and when crowds of people were wailing and lamenting, it was an outward thing. I, I remember occasions going to funerals and working in a funeral home when you see people of, of different backgrounds hysterical at a funeral. And you can't say, oh, that grief is just kind of put on. It's, it's just, it's a show. It, it, that's not the case here at all. These women are weeping. These women are crying out. And notice what Jesus says to them. 
He doesn't tell them, women, be quiet. He doesn't say to them some comment to to show that they are not of worth and dignity. It says, Jesus turned unto them as he heard them wailing and crying and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves, weep for your children. This is so significant because when you go back to the prophecy of Zechariah there, there at the end of the Old Testament, there in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, There in that record in verse, chapter 9 of the nations of God that are rejoicing and coming into the blessings of the gospel. And this is prophetic. It's seen as something to happen in the future. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. Now this is a prophecy related to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. As the people are waving their palm branches and and shouting Hosanna to the son of David. But notice here, Zechariah calls them daughters of Zion. Daughter. Of Jerusalem. And as you go to Hosea chapter 9 and verse 14, Hosea chapter 9, verse 14, it's an interesting thing that he says there. He speaks of the barrenness. Of women, he speaks of the captivity that will come to Israel for their sins. Notice there in verse 14 of chapter 9. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them more than all their princesses are revolters. Here what we find is that Jesus addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. But here's a prophecy. Because he gives a warning here to these daughters of Jerusalem not to weep for him, but to weep for yourselves and to weep for your children. Most likely a reference to what we saw last week when the Jews, when they wanted to put Jesus to death, they cried out and say, Away with this man. Let his blood be what? Upon us and our children. So in that prophecy, it speaks of that coming day when the blood would be upon the people of Israel. Jesus tells these women, the days are coming, verse 29, in which they shall say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bear. Reference to Hosea chapter 9. 
in verse 14. And so the prophecy speaks of that coming day of destruction in 70 AD when all of Israel will be judged by God, when the city will fall, when the temple would be destroyed, and they would say on that day, fall on us and to the hills cover us. And Jesus is saying there's a day of judgment coming for Israel and Israel will cry out, let the mountains fall upon us. When the judgment of God comes, the people will cry, not in repentance, but they will cry asking for the mountains and the hills to fall upon them and cover them. This verse 30 is a reference to the, something that is used in the Old Testament to indicate judgment of the Lord God upon the nations of the earth. But as we think upon this passage, he calls the women to weep for themselves and weep for their children because the blood of the covenant is upon them and upon their children. And out of the daughters of Jerusalem, God saves a people. But these daughters of Jerusalem, like most of us, have that sentimental love for Jesus. Oh, poor Jesus, how pathetic to see him standing there bearing his cross. How pathetic to see him walking the road to Calvary. How pathetic to see that he will be put to death. Jesus says, don't weep for me. Jesus knew full well every detail of his suffering and death that he would encounter. He knew every detail before it even happened. Because as the eternal son of God who was made flesh, he knew all things. He had that human will. He had that divine will. He had that human nature and that divine nature. Two natures in one person. There he knew every detail. He knew what things would happen. So he encountered that. So daughters, don't weep for me. Weep for you and for your children. Do we weep for us and for our children? Some of you have experienced, and we have been praying in some of those regards, for children who have walked away from the faith, Children who at least openly profess their allegiance to Christ, and yet no more walk with him because the pleasures of sin are more enticing than the things of the kingdom of God. The one thing we learn from Luke is that all of us as believers are cross bearers. We are called to bear our cross daily and follow Christ. But as we think upon this passage this morning, the way for us to consider the sufferings of Christ is not by having that sentimental love that some churches practice with this um, whole Lenten view of stations of the cross and those kinds of things, even sadly in some Presbyterian churches. That is a sentimental um, view of the sufferings of Christ but the way to consider the sufferings of Christ is for us to begin by bewailing our own sin. What sin in our lives do we need to bewail and mourn over? Joel chapter 2 verse 12 says, Return to me, 
with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Weeping tears over Christ's sufferings are not a sign of repentance. Weeping tears over the sufferings of Christ are not a sign of grace. There can be many pious acts and religious zeal. And there are many tears that can certainly be produced. This does not bring about the saving work of God's grace. Many tears can be nothing more than sentimental or a natural expression. But believing meditation on what Christ suffered for us can break and melt a stony heart. Well, friends, perhaps your heart has become hardened. Perhaps there is a period of sin, backslide in your life that has made your heart hardened. Oh, think upon the sufferings of Christ in faith and let what Christ has done break and melt your stony heart. A true heart, a heart of true faith must always see that it was for my sins that Christ suffered and died. The Lord's table is always a wonderful time for us to meditate with a heart of faith upon what Christ has done for me. Is Christ dead for me? Am I dead to sin and alive in him? The scripture tells us that if we trust in Christ by faith and faith alone, we are dead to sin and alive unto him. The scriptures promise that we shall never die. There's wonderful words of consolation and comfort from the Epistle of Romans chapter 8, I think are so apropos. Because there in Romans chapter 8, reminds us that those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, no longer are under condemnation. And there in verse 34, Paul says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. If we are to catch a glimpse of what Jesus did on that road to Calvary, we see that it calls us to consider, as Jesus told the daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves, weep for your children. Perhaps your children are not where they should be spiritually. And as a parent, you should be weeping for their salvation. You should be 
praying and interceding to Christ that he would indeed have mercy upon him. As we think of this passage as it relates to us, Jesus' rejection means judgment for Israel. All the blessings would be turned to curses as we see there in verses 29 and 30. Bitter days of judgment will come. It will be better for women to be barren without child than to bear children in that day. But the question for us to consider this morning is, do we love this Christ who laid down his life for sinners? Do we find ourselves being drawn more and more to him? Or do we find ourselves becoming more distant? Perhaps that's the thing we need to consider this morning. Because Luke doesn't write his account of the gospel just to give us a historical record. Which is important for us to understand this Christ. But he gives us that historical record that we might know this Christ. That we might follow him. That we might bear the reproach of wicked and sinful men. Because those who follow Christ will suffer the same ridicule. They will suffer the same rejection. And yet there's great reward for those who do so. But as we conclude here, Jesus speaks in prophecy of that day that would come upon Jerusalem. When the conditions would become so horrible that Josephus describes a sense of it. People rabid for food. People attacking one another. Bursting in their homes. Catching and eating animals and all kinds of despicable things that Josephus records in his account. But the prophecy of Jesus was not to be a sensational or terrifying thing. No, it was to call them to repentance. And there is a day of judgment coming, the end of this age, when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And on that day, those who do not know Christ will say, let the mountains fall upon us, cover us, from the wrath of a holy God. But if you know Christ, if you have repented and trusted in him by faith, then all of your sin he has taken upon himself. His righteousness covers your sin and covers your guilt. And the question this morning is, do you know this Christ? Have you repented? Have you trusted in him? Have you declared your allegiance to Christ? Do you desire to follow him? Oh, let us, as Jesus tells these weeping women, weep for ourselves and our children. Indeed, they might come to Christ. As I think of the spiritual state of my own family, I must confess there are times when I have not weeped the salvation of my own family. And let us today particularly weep for our sins, for our children. 
we might understand that Jesus died to cover every sin that you've ever committed. All of that was laid upon Him. And how will you respond this morning to this Christ who indeed calls us to follow Him? Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do confess this morning that often our, ta- our minds and hearts are dull. We do not understand the truth of thy word, but we pray that as we come this morning to see the characters on the road to Calvary with Jesus, may we indeed identify with him by giving our allegiance unto him. May we come and follow him. Because he gives life to those who who indeed follow him. Bless this word to our souls for thy sake. Amen.